new relationships often involve new responsibilities, new requirements, and usually lead to new results in our lives. For example, maybe we get a new job. Part of the responsibilities and requirements are for that new job is that we show up on time, we perform a certain amount of work, and then we get an expected amount of pay. Or maybe we become a husband or a wife and we now have a spouse. There are responsibilities of being kind and faithful and, and loving to that spouse. The results are that we get to enjoy a life with that person and enjoy a relationship with another person. Or maybe we become a parent and that new responsibility and requirement is being unselfish and things like that. And the result is we get to enjoy a relationship with a young little person that we grow up and enjoy a relationship with him or her. Or maybe we join a service club. That new requirements and responsibility that we have is that we obviously give to the service club, whether it be Kiwanis or Rotary or Lions. We become an ambassador to the community on behalf of that service club, and hopefully we see some results. We see positive change as a result of those new responsibilities that we have and requirements that are placed on us. Or maybe someone becomes a citizen of a country, right? The requirements and responsibilities upon them are to obey the laws, pay taxes, hopefully as little as possible, of course. And then, as a result, you get to enjoy the benefits of living in that specific country. Today, we're going to see what responsibilities and requirements are placed on believers in Jesus Christ. And we'll see the results that occur in their lives when they follow Jesus Christ. And Peter, in this letter here, in the first 12 verses of chapter 1, he's answering some of the questions we might have about a faith in Jesus. Maybe an unbeliever that doesn't follow Jesus asks, I'm not a Christian, but what would my life look like if I am or become a Christian? An unbeliever might ask, if I become a Christian, what is God going to do for me or do to me? Peter answers these questions in this passage. And even a believer, someone that has faith in Jesus, Peter answers his or her questions. It might be, I love Jesus, but how do I live out that love and grow in that love over time? Or someone might say, I believe in Jesus and I read my Bible and pray every day, but what does that look like when I go off to work or go to school or things like that? Peter answers some of those questions in these 12 verses for us today. He describes who we are as Christians. He describes what is a revelation of our, our great salvation. He describes it as something that has occurred in the past as well as a hope to look at in the future. Some people call these 12 verses the great doxology of Peter. And we're going to learn today about how a relationship with Jesus Christ involves certain requirements placed on us that lead to results that we're going to see in our lives. So as we get oriented with this brief little letter, it's just five chapters, we read about the author and the recipients that Peter is writing to in the first two verses. The text reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 
May grace and peace be yours in the fullest. Now, the author of this letter we read is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's only one Peter in the Bible, so it's easy to identify who this Peter is. It's the the guy that Jesus called to follow him for three years on earth, and the same man that Jesus commissioned to be one of the leaders of the first century church, Peter. Peter spent three years walking and living with Jesus, and then he spent the next 30 plus years leading and teaching and establishing the church in the first century. And he addresses the people to this letter, the readers, in verse 1. He says, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, there in verse 1. Now, these people he addresses as aliens, and when he describes aliens, what he means is people that are sojourners, that are exiles, that are foreign residents, right? They are aliens because their citizenship as believers in Jesus is heavenly, right? They are citizens of heaven, but temporarily sojourners on earth. And the places here might sound kind of obscure. You might not be familiar with them. There are five provinces in Asia Minor, not Asia as in China, but at that time they called Asia Minor the area of what we know as Turkey there. And there are five provinces that he is addressing to believers that live in those five provinces. And he calls them at the very end of verse 1 in my translation, he says, those who are chosen. If you're using a New International Version Bible or a New Living Translation, that word is placed into verse 2 because it seems to go along a little better with verse 2. But he calls them chosen here. To those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. We're a verse and a half in, and Peter's already diving deep into some difficult doctrinal matters for us when he talks about people that are chosen. And there's a sense from what he says here and in other parts of Scripture that God knows us and he selects us to be part of his family. And there are kind of two different schools of thought. Some people say that he, he knows us, and so he, he chose me because he knew I would choose him. That's one form of interpreting Peter's words there. Or others, people would say, you know, I chose him because he chose me. Now, it's kind of difficult to to take those two schools of thought from these two brief words, to be chosen and foreknown, but it is good to acknowledge here there's a sense in Scripture that God knows us and selects us to be part of his family, as Peter briefly mentions in this introduction. So, Peter goes a little bit deeper here after this brief introduction. He also, I should mention before we move on, the Trinity here. He says, God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. All three persons are involved in that work of selecting people for his family. So, Peter Peter goes a little deeper here about what it means to be chosen by God and to be part of God's family. As he describes regeneration for believers, how they are born again in verses 3 through 5. 
He writes, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, 1 Peter verse 3 here in chapter 1 begins a long section extending to chapter 2 verse 10 where Peter counts all of the blessings that believers have because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And specifically here in verses 3 through 12, these are one big, this is one big long sentence in Greek. It's 175 words in Greek. If you wrote a sentence like that in high school and turned it in, you'd get a lot of red ink for your run-on sentence. But we're going to let Peter slide here as he describes this big, long, what some people believe it might have originally been a hymn that was sung or recited in church services, and he's adapted it into a letter form here. And what he describes here for us is how God pardons us in verse 3. He said, God, uh, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There he says it's his great mercy. Because of our faith in God, our faith in God is a great mercy that we have received. And it gives for us, as he says here, a living hope. For the future, a great expectation that we have. And he elaborates on that in verse 4. While God pardons us, he also preserves our inheritance in verse 4. Peter writes, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now here as Peter is describing our preserved inheritance in heaven, he, he uses three adjectives in Greek that all begin with the same Greek letter, alpha, and they end with the same syllable. Aftharton, amiarnton, and amaranton, right? He uses this as a way to catch their attention and highlight the focus here, where he says, your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And those things are reserved in heaven for them. It's placed in the perfect tense in Greek, which usually indicates that something is permanent and fixed and cannot be changed. What Peter is saying is that their inheritance that they have as believers in Christ is safe and secure in heaven. It's put in a lockbox and only God has the key. Their inheritance won't spoil like fruit and it won't fade like paint. It's safe. Peter describes how they've been pardoned, these believers, their inheritance is protected, and then lastly, how God protects their salvation in verse 5. He says, who were protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, when Peter describes salvation, he uses that word salvation a little bit differently in his writings than Paul does or than James does. 
See, the Apostle Paul, when he talked about salvation, he's usually looking at salvation as something that we gain entrance into. He looks at salvation in, through the eyes of initiation, like a boat. How do I get in the boat is usually how Paul describes salvation. And then James, another apostle in the early church, talked about salvation, that same word, as a practical thing. Like, what, now that I'm in the boat, what do I do inside the boat of salvation? That's usually how James is looking at salvation. Now that I'm saved, what do I do with it? But Peter takes a slightly different um, nuance of salvation. For him, salvation usually is a future aspect, kind of a glorification for eternity in the future. As in, where is that boat going to be forever? And what do we enjoy in that boat once we get to where it's supposed to go? They're using the same word, but trying to kind of looking at it from a different point of view. And here, when we read about salvation, Peter almost always describes salvation as this future expectation, this future hope, this eternal good thing that we can look forward to. Craig Keener, who teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky, has a commentary where he says he likes to translate that word hope that we saw in verse 3 and we'll see in verse 9. He says hope sounds too wishy-washy, so he likes to translate it as a, an expectation, something we know we will experience. But what Peter's describing here for us is he describes regeneration for believers and how we're born again because of our faith in Jesus. He's telling us that what we have can't be taken away. Our eternal inheritance based on our faith in God that's in heaven can't be lost and can't be taken away. And that's important as he mentioned in verses 1 and 2, if God foreknew us in advance and, and selected us in advance, then it's not something we did to get our salvation because if you and I did something to get our salvation, then we might do something in order to lose it. But if it's something that God has initiated, and of course we still have to respond to, then it's safe based on God's works. If you went to Walmart or Kmart about 30 years ago and you ever went to the back of the store and you went to the bathroom, usually the bathroom would be on one side and there was a department on the other side of the bathroom. Do you remember what was always right across from the bathroom? Some of you called it layaway. You remember the layaway department? And layaway was that idea you could take something you want back there and if you didn't have enough money, you could give them a small amount and come back and make payments. And if I remember right, you could even pay for it in full and leave it there for like 30 days, which was great if you had kids at home that were always snooping around looking for their presents. See, our inheritance that God has for us is in layaways. Based on the blood of Jesus that has been shed, the work has been done, and our inheritance is safe and secure in God's layaway. Nothing can corrupt it, and nothing can ruin it. And Peter starts with this focus on our regeneration and being born again and our inheritance because he's going to move on to something difficult for us to probably hear. It's about how we're going to suffer as believers. And he says we're supposed to be rejoicing through that suffering in verses 6 through 9. Where Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, 
If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you, have not, you do not see him now, you believe him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, when we begin a new book study of a book of the Bible, I usually try to read it about 10 or 15 times, and I note certain key words and themes and create a big idea for the book. And one thing I try to do is create a one-word description for that book. Right? If you have to summarize the whole book in one word, what would it be? And that one word was the word suffering for the book of 1 Peter. He uses the word suffer 14 different times in just five chapters. And then he has a bunch of other synonyms for suffering he mentions as well. He talks about how believers are going to experience trials, be slandered, be reviled, be harshly treated, endure a fiery ordeal, and then here in this passage that they're going to endure testing. But what he tells these believers is that they need to be rejoicing in their sufferings for four reasons. And that first reason is in verse 6, that those sufferings are going to be temporary. He says, you rejoice even though now for a little while. Suffering is a little bit easier to endure when we know it's temporary. It doesn't fix the pain, but makes the pain maybe easier to endure when we remember our suffering is temporary. But he also says we rejoice in suffering because... It is testing in verse 7. He says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, trials do to faith what fire does to gold. It purges and it purifies. Did you notice the purpose statement at the very beginning of verse 7 as Peter is describing the suffering? That suffering happens in verse 7, so that. Those trials are deemed necessary by God to purge things from our lives and to purify our faith. Specifically, they purify our faith because we learn that nothing else is adequate to rely on except for God through those trials. Sometimes I hear pastors say, you know, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And I always want to gently kind of raise my hand and say, there are some footnotes to that statement. You're not telling these people because <laughs> that's not what all of scripture says. In the Old Testament, we know the story of Jacob where he was sold into slavery and years later, he meets his brothers that sold him into slavery and they're crying and repentant and he says, it's okay, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes to the Romans in 8.28 and says, for those who believe in God, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. 
He didn't say he only works the good things or the positive things, all the things that we experience. R.C. Sproul, who is a pastor in Florida, he passed away about five years ago. But he says, God's hand is in earthly trials that are unjustly put upon us by wicked people. The hand of God trumps the evil intent of those who wound us. And God uses in his gracious providence those various experiences of affliction and pain for his glory and for our ultimate edification. So Peter's telling them that we should be rejoicing in our sufferings because they are temporary, because they are testing, and then because they are tangible in verse 8. He writes, and though you have not seen him, referring to Jesus, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. See, our faith that we have as believers is not some abstract knowledge or enlightenment. It's based on a tangible person, Jesus Christ, that suffered just like we suffered, that suffered just like we suffered, suffered. And then that suffering, he says lastly, fourth in verse nine, is total. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. John MacArthur writes about this little verse. He says, in one sense, Christians now possess the result of their faith, a constant deliverance from the power of sin. But in another sense, we are waiting to receive the full salvation of eternal glory in the redemption of our bodies. So while Peter is telling these believers that what we have can't be taken away, he's also telling them here in verses 6 through 9, what we have helps us endure suffering. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said in his book, Spiritual Depression, the Christian is not one who has become immune to what is happening around him. It'd be nice if we just lived blissfully ignorant of all the evil that goes on in our worlds and in our lives, but that's not how we live. What Peter's saying is the Christian life is not exempt from affliction. If anything, Peter is going to teach us as we go through this life, the Christian should expect affliction because he or her is a believer. Some of the holiest people I know have endured some of the most suffering of any people I know. Now, are they holy because they endured suffering or did they endure suffering because they were holy? I would say they learned and grew in holiness because they endured suffering. Most of you know that when a bone breaks, it grows back even stronger. Something happens biologically where if a bone breaks, it, it fuses together and it's even stronger than it was before. And that's the sense of what Peter is saying here, that when our faith is, is tested, it is also strengthened. And I think Peter, Peter has in his mind, if we can enter his mind that we are chosen and foreknown by God. And he's saying that as a way to remind us that when we are in God's will, it might sometimes include pain and suffering that we have to experience. Sometimes part of God's plan is the pain and suffering that we might experience. So Peter ends here with some examples of prophets that predicted what was going to happen 
that predicted what we read about in the New Testament, their revelation in verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, Peter says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, talking about the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, as Peter is talking about prophets here, he's referencing Old Testament prophets, men that God used to deliver God's messages. And there are usually three types of oracles that prophets would deliver. Some were judgment oracles against the nation of Israel and Judah, or judgments against foreign nations near them. Some of them were blessing oracles, God's promises in the future to, to be good to those nations, whether Israel or Judah or others. And some were salvation oracles about how God would show up and deliver them out of their difficulties. And here, Peter's describing these prophets that spoke for God and their predictions and what they, they said and how they, they understood some of what they said, but they were still searching and, and seeking and trying to understand God's words about the future. These prophets were searching in verse 10, he says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Now, believers in the Old Testament were saved based on faith, but they still were trying to learn what was that faith going to look like in the future when the promised Messiah, the promised deliverer from Israel came. You know, how would that change things and what would that look like? They searched and tried to understand what those prophecies meant. They also were seeking, he says in verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, when Peter mentions the Spirit of Christ, that likely is a reference to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that came upon those prophets and delivered the messages and spoke to them God's words. But also we read about the sufferings of Christ. As you may know, some of those Old Testament prophets predicted how there would be a future deliverer, a future Messiah, a future anointed one that would rescue the nation of Israel and rescue people from their sins. For example, Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 through 10 was written 500 years before Jesus Christ lived. And it described how this person would enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and he would be praised, but eventually he would be rejected and killed. The same thing that Jesus did when he lived on the earth, 500 years before Jesus lived. Isaiah chapter 52 verses 13 through chapter 3 of uh, 53 verse 12 is the most graphic and the most specific. Isaiah spoke those words 700 years before Jesus lived. He talked about sin and how there needed to be a solution and how that solution would be the sacrifice of one specific person. 
Isaiah predicted the manner Jesus would die. He described the type of trial that would occur illegally. He described who specifically would kill that Messiah, where he would be buried, and what the results would be. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah predicted it. Or we should say God spoke through Isaiah and predicted it. Another one is Psalm 22. It was spoken by King David. Now, King David was not technically a prophet, but God did speak through David prophetically in Psalm 22. 1,000 years before Jesus lived, God spoke through David and described the words Jesus would use from the cross. He described how Jesus would be rejected by the religious leaders. He described what parts of his body would be broken and pierced on the cross and what would come out of his body when he was pierced. He even described how soldiers would gamble for Jesus' clothes while Jesus was on the cross by throwing dice. 1,000 years before Jesus lived. So when Peter describes these prophets that made predictions of the sufferings of Christ, he's talking about the study of those Old Testament prophets and how not just New Testament people studied them, but those Old Testament saints studied their own writings. In verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but excuse me, but in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. Peter gives us a reminder that those prophets didn't speak based on their human knowledge or human experiences. They spoke God's word that God spoke through them. In Peter's second letter, chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, he says, But we know, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter just reminds us that those words they spoke were God's words that they wrote down for us to study. And it says at the very end there, those words which angels long to look. They're so magnificent that apparently angels want to know how they're going to be fulfilled too. Angels are watching and, and hoping to see things occur as well. What Peter's telling us here is that what we have must be studied. Whether it's the Old Testament prophecies or the New Testament words that we have now, it should be studied. We shouldn't dumb down those prophets or dismiss the prophets. We should study them and try to learn from them. Our women's Bible study that meets on Tuesdays, they took a period of going through all of the minor prophets chapter by chapter. It was quite an endeavor but that's what we're supposed to do as believers, to study all of Scripture. And it's interesting, if you come to the New Testament, even those New Testament people knew that the prophets predicted the Messiah to come. When Jesus was born, the Pharisees are there, the religious leaders, and Herod comes to those religious leaders and said, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And the Pharisees knew in Bethlehem based on Micah, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that Jesus showed up on the scene when we look back. Even people at that time, people that weren't even probably believers, 
understood that those prophecies predicted someone that would come. So as we start today this first message of this book, we read Peter's words and and we learn that God's word is exact in what it predicted, but God's word is also enduring in what we are supposed to practice. And these words we have from Peter should be held in the highest esteem. Peter walked with Jesus for three years. He talked with Jesus. He ate meals with him. He saw Jesus teach. He saw Jesus talk to people and interact with them. He saw people, Jesus perform miracles. And then for the next 30 years, Peter figured out how to live out that same faith that Jesus had and that he was trying to teach other people. And he's writing this letter, as he said, to aliens, citizens of heaven living in Asia Minor. But he's also writing it to us, heavenly citizens living in America right now, about how we temporarily live here. And he starts with things that are first of importance. First, that our inheritance can't be taken away. Second, that what we have helps us endure suffering. And a reminder that what we have should be studied, that we're going to continue doing as we start this series. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Peter's words that are sometimes about suffering and the, the troubles we experience as believers. Thank you for the help that it gives to us and the comfort it gives us as we go through different trials in our lives and try to make it through them. Thank you for Peter's words that reveal to people that don't know you what it's like to be a believer. And we pray for those that maybe don't know you or that don't have faith in you yet that you're Holy Spirit would be softening their hearts and they would come to faith in you through these words of Peter and other parts of the Bible, whether it's the prophets or the New Testament or those Old Testament stories, that all of it points to you, God, to your Savior that came to die for our sins. Thank you for a place here where we get to read these words openly and discuss them and talk about them. Thank you for a place where we get to to praise you and sing to you and share our, our prayer requests and talk to you. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll invite you to, if you're able, to stand, and then we're going to celebrate uh, birthdays and anniversaries after um, the benediction. So you can stand if you're able to, and then I'll invite Judy up, up front. Let us go and worship you, Lord, and what we say, what we do, and how we think. Let us saturate our city and community with worship of you, Lord. Amen. So uh, you're welcome to have a seat.